Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Charlotte Weber, the author of Tell Me What You Want, A Therapist and Her Clients Explore Our 12 Deepest Desires. Welcome to the show, Charlotte. Hello. I am so glad that you're here and we get to explore this important topic of figuring out what we want. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? I am a psychotherapist and from Connecticut originally, and I'm giving the biographical details that already put me to sleep. (laughs) And I live in London and trained here. And it's so awkward to say anything more. That is fine. What led you into this field? How did you first know this was the job for you? Well, I mean, I think I've always hidden and also revealed myself through other people's stories. And I've been desperately curious to understand other people and to some degree myself, but I'm often, I'm often surprised by what I don't know about myself. So I just feel deeply fascinated trying to figure people out. Did you know you wanted to go to college and grad school? How did you find your pathway? I began by feeling very misunderstood and like an outsider at school in Connecticut, actually. And then I went abroad. I finished finished high school in Paris where I was an obvious outsider and I loved kind of being defined that way. And I think I've been comfortable not quite belonging ever since. So I went to university in England and continued my pariah status while wanting to find my way. And I think I just, I felt a combination of self-belief and self-doubt and that continues. What inspired you to write the book, Tell Me What You Want? Another great question, because I think that with all of all of these desires, there's a conflict, there's a kind of polarity within. So I, I actually didn't even admit to myself that I wanted to write the book. I had this kind of pining and this idea, but I, I dared not express it to myself in some way for years. So I... I actually waited to be asked questions about what I wanted for my life. And instead, no one asked me these questions, the kind of big questions about desire. So I started to ask clients when I became a psychotherapist. And I found that people became energetic and passionate and kind of revitalized discussing the subject. Did it surprise you that when you were training as a psychotherapist that you weren't asked what you want? You must have gone through some of your own sessions as part of your training. I've had really frustrating therapy pretty much my whole life on and off. And I found it very dissatisfying personally when I'm, I'm a really bad client, actually. I'm, I'm wanting too much, too little, and... It's interesting because I I first had therapy when I was six years old and I'd had heart surgery when I was four and a half and I had terrible death anxiety. So I was sent to therapy and I couldn't stand this man. 
And I just resisted with all my might and felt kind of trapped and stuck. And and yet I wanted something, but that that agitation has continued in therapy. And it's it's weird that I didn't ask the question myself. Like I, I was wanting permission to go to the big desires, but why did I wait? It can be hard when you're in someone else's office and they're the authority figure or the expert. Completely. To take, yeah, to take charge of that space, to say, hello, I've arrived because here's what I'm going to do. You do wait to be invited in and to hear what the agenda or the rules are. Completely. And I think it's it's kind of like hide and seek. I, I was kind of waiting to be found out and guided in some way, but then would also put on a show. And I think, I think we all pretend to some degree, and even in therapy, there's a lot of waiting to kind of be led to the next thing. And people, people still bury parts of themselves and don't, don't know if they have permission to say certain things. It's, it's a lot harder to be open and honest than we think. Trust can take a while to build. And if people have found that who they were, what they showed of themselves was not acceptable or understood, it can be harder to believe that even the therapist will have space for that. Completely. And I think even when I was kind of not thinking I wanted the approval of therapists, some part of me felt like if I, if I dared admit certain things about myself, I wouldn't be accepted. I would be disgraceful. I'd be unworthy. So it's, it's interesting the way we present a false self to ourselves as well. So it sounds like the book was a real space for you to ask yourself what you wanted and to explore all the ways that human beings hide themselves, show themselves, and are uncomfortable admitting what they really want. It's one thing to sit down and write it all out and type it all up. It's a lot of other steps to be willing to show it to other people. How did you get to where you wanted to give this book to others to read? I I think I continue to have tensions within and is it is it worthy? Is it not? I I'm a big fan of embracing the paradoxes of desires. So like at any moment we have contradictory longings and views of ourselves and we don't need to eliminate one and decide on our worth. And I think it, there's often the sense that we need to categorize, like, am I good or am I bad? Am I onto something or do I have nothing to offer? And actually just embrace the range, a kind of wide full, I know that's not a word, but Widefulness as an approach to thinking about our life longings. So I, I felt vulnerable and uncertain of anything I was doing. But at the same time, I really, I really trusted that I could be a conduit of other people's stories. So that part was more comfortable for me than, than looking at myself in certain ways. The book explores the 12 deepest desires. We don't have time to go through all 12 in an hour. We trust that listeners can get the book and get the material that we didn't cover today. But 
my question is, how did you determine the 12 deepest desires? I think that we need a framework for knowing where to begin because we often just feel daunted by like either specifics with desire, where desire exaggerates the details that it fixates on. So I have to have this one person or I have to have this hand back and then I will be happy. It kind of goes into black and white thinking where we think we want something in absolute terms or we want one specific thing. And I think that con- that having a contained space for prompting discussion can be really helpful. So just naming the topic of attention, like not, not in a kind of overly lesson guide way, but just provoking conversation around specific things opens up possibility and I think gives permission to explore desires that we wouldn't necessarily name unless asked. So something like power, I think, is really awkward and really universal as a desire, but but boy, do we wince when we say it out loud. I want power. And chapter four is about power. And it starts by naming our discomfort with it. Yeah. You you say that when we trust our power, we can let go of needing to be in absolute control of everything. And you talk about misuse of power and that people are afraid of unconsciously or consciously repeating the abuses of power that they've experienced in their own life. And towards the end of the chapter, you remind us that we have agency, authority, and responsibility, and we can make choices that align with our values. So there's a lot of permission for us to come into our power in that chapter. Can we talk about some of the blocks that we have to even wanting to use that word? Why do we wince? Why are we so uncomfortable? I think that we are still afraid of, or or still afraid. I think that there's often a kind of scary sense of the monsters we might be within. So even if we don't think of ourselves as being overly moralistic and rigid, we want, we want our inner selves to match some kind of nice picture of who we are. And actually power has a really greedy dominant side and we do have moments of aggression in our, in our own uncensored selves, I think no matter what, but it's, it's not necessarily pretty. And I think especially for women, power is kind of a little bit more brazen than being empowered, which is more ladylike, more understandable. Do you think there's a real difference between having power and being empowered? I do, because I think being, I mean, you could say I'm splitting hairs, but I i feel like we talk about female empowerment and it's kind of a reclaiming of private autonomy in some way that's dignified and granted because there's been a struggle and a vulnerability like Maya Angelou or someone with hardship who's overcome adversity and good for her but power itself is kind of not necessarily reclaiming anything it could just be going further or having power over other people so I think that it's it's a little bit more demanding 
as a desire and harder to name. One of the other desires that you take us through in the book is the previous chapter, chapter three, which is about understanding. And you talk about how we want to feel less alone, less strange, and unacceptable. You started by offering us your own experiences of feeling like the strange one. Can we feel less strange or do we need to embrace our our inner weirdo? Oh, I love embracing inner weirdos and getting comfortable and cozy with the alienated parts of ourselves. I think... I think that being curious and surprised by whatever it is we might find out about ourselves can can be really creative and enlivening and liberating. But again, we kind of need permission. So I think anxiety can can make us very rigid in our sense that we understand. Like people can come to therapy and say, I, I really know myself. I, I know who I am. That much I'm sure about. And I mean, I think we all have moments of thinking, this is who I am. And then it changes and there's something surprising and different and odd. And I think either about oneself or about other people. And I think recognizing what we don't understand and maybe can't fully explain or grasp, it's, it's part of the magic and mystery of life. And I think it there's something really curious and kind of inspiring about it when we when we allow ourselves to admit that we have no idea what exactly is happening. When we understand ourselves better, are we more likely to find understanding in our own environment or are we more likely to let go of wanting other people to understand us? I think it depends on context, but again, like, we can have that wonderful clarity about ourselves and convey that with poise and articulation and give a great delivery and still people can get us terribly wrong. I mean, I say us. I I certainly have had the experience of communicating something badly and weirdly I've felt understood and then other times where I've con had a sense and then it's just impossible to convey or connect with certain people at certain moments. So I think that we have to survive not being understood by others and kind of feeling that disconnect at least at moments. But I think we've become almost compulsive about the need for connection. Like we're supposed to be connecting all the time and feel connected and have that have that sense and it's just not it's not totally true to the nuance and complexity of experience there is a false feeling because of email and smartphones and texts and snail mail and express mail and all the ways people can reach out to us quite quickly that we should have a lot of these swift connections throughout the day and that if we don't maybe someone's ignoring us or something's wrong with us and we can go from feeling connected which might be a really fleeting feeling to feeling incredibly lonely totally and i think that 
we also keep hearing about how important it is to have friendships, healthy friendships, connection. It not only is good for your emotions and your well-being, it actually makes you live a longer life. And it's it's almost panic-inducing, I think, for a lot of people because who feels connected at every moment and feels that every friendship is kind of on track? It's just not, it's not reality emotionally. My listeners um, tend to have to move a few times in their life. They have to move to go to one school, move to do a fellowship, move to do a postdoc, move to get a job. And through that, they continually have to make new friends. They lose touch with old friends. And it seems to become more challenging. How do people weather these connections and disconnections with friends? I think that leaning into the awkwardness and the risk and the vulnerability of con- beginning a new connection is a really great and exciting and clumsy thing. So there's always, there's always something that could go terribly wrong when you make new friends and it's not, it's not as kind of, acceptable in some way like you have to you have to be daring and courageous to admit that you want a new friend as an adult and people people in therapy often struggle to say that they feel friendless or they feel really disconnected from people who they thought they could count on it's it's kind of i mean in england anyway there's this there's a shame around feeling alienated and yet it's inevitable that we have moments of loneliness and we can survive it and deal with rejection, even if we don't like it. So I like putting people in awkward situations and knowing that there's risk of being completely embarrassed. You talk in the book about making space for the nuances, sitting in the questions. You also talk to us about the importance about flexibility and the willingness to change. Change puts enormous pressure on relationships. If we change, other people can get really uncomfortable. And we can get uncomfortable with change, too. We really can. And we are very ambivalent about the whole thing. We are desperate to change and we'll do anything to get out of actually changing. And we want what's familiar. Sometimes people revert to really self-destructive habits and relationships because it's it's what they know. It's just that kind of homesickness, even when it's really unhealthy and upsetting, even a kind of distress, like we can become really attached to a feeling of sorrow and deprivation if it's what we know. So I think I think our resistance to change is something that's worth acknowledging. And and friendships don't always survive change and somehow it comes as a big shock. There's a lot of cultural rhetoric about friends forever and best friends forever, and it really pressures the intensity of the friendship and almost makes a contract that it has to last forever. Totally, and at the same time, it doesn't have the same kind of, the same kind of guidance that romantic relationships have, so it's still plotless which allows for a lot of miss 
misattunements with what the rules are, like the standards for being a good friend, being dutiful, being connected. Like there's often a kind of difference in attitude that comes over time in a friendship. And again, like change completely threatens friendship, but it feels like a personal failure for a lot of people to to have it go wrong. I, I think that at the same time that we talk about friends forever, we also talk about growing and progressing and developing and and yet expect to kind of have things be the same when we imagine being friends forever. You talk to us in the book when we're considering change and growth, which is a theme throughout the book, about staying in narrow roles and the risk of identity stagnation. Can you talk to us about those risks? Yeah, so I mean, I sound like I'm so mean when I say I love putting people in embarrassing situations, but I, and I don't totally love it, of course, it's important to feel safe as well, but I I feel like an identity crisis is often preferable to stagnation. And if we can kind of lean into the discomfort and the, the distress of uncertainty and having to recompose and reorganize parts of oneself, it, it really allows for something fresh and exciting and interesting. But again, like we, we assign ourselves this, this role and think that we have to stick to our plan. And I think we overestimate consistency and we're not allowed to change our minds in our sense of self or our commitment. So there's often a kind of guilt that comes with people realizing that what they wanted in a relationship three years ago is no longer the thing they want or care about. You tell us in the book that identity problems can feel like a psychological civil war. I had to sit with that for a little bit because it was too true. Oh, I like that. I want to know more. Yeah, we can have that inner that inner turmoil that feels like such a battle that has to be won and lost. And I, I don't know how it's played out for you, but it's so effortful and strenuous and consuming when it happens. You also tell us that learning something new demands effort and challenges our sense of mastery. Does that challenge, does it feed into our identity crisis? Yes, I think that we we like to categorize. So we like to think, I'm this, I'm that. And actually kind of giving into the, the unknown again, like the slightly mysterious yet to be discovered part of ourselves. Being interested is... <laughs> It's daunting, but at the same time, it's what's necessary for for opening ourselves and and having any kind of adventure. But it's really easy to shut down and think that we have to stay in our lane when it comes to identity, including our characteristics. Like, I'm a nice person. I'm a dedicated person. I'm hardworking. Whatever it is, like, allowing for contradiction is so liberating. 
You also talk to us in the book about ego strength, and that seems to be a, a through line of the things we've talked about so far. Ego can be, so many of us have uh, used it to describe someone who is difficult or totally. larger than life, and yet we all have an ego. And you talk to us about ego strength. How can we understand a healthy relationship with our ego and have ego strength? So I think that ego is like this marginalized group. I mean, what is, I, I think ego is our amigo, basically. And what is the problem or even the belief that it could be eradicated? Like how how harsh and unreasonable a request when people talk about getting rid of the ego and no ego. Like why? Why would we do that? And how could we even think it's possible? But I think that we we defend ourselves from the enemy of ego. And a lot of us are so scared. Like I, I have to say, I I really struggle with revealing ego with seeming like I have too much ego and and yet of course a part of me has ego strength and grandiose ideals about myself and also self-loathing and it's just like this place that is hard to go to but so much pretending goes into it and I just think if we can if we can acknowledge and hold space for ego it's it's a beautiful, noble thing, and it's not actually at all narcissistic. It's a sense of self, which is kind of the opposite of narcissistic. It's It's got an accurate picture of self. So there's a kind of nobility in ego strength, a recognition of limitation as well as possibility. Can you say more about the difference between ego strength and a narcissistic personality? There's places in the book where you say we're hesitant to offer ourselves self-love because we're afraid that we'll become grandiose. So can we understand really the difference between a healthy, strong self and what we often hear described as a narcissistic self? Yes, I think that a healthy, strong self does not have the same compulsion to to spin exaggerated stories that are that are myths and kind of illusions not human potential so like ego strength recognizes that something is possible but not everything is possible i'm i don't want to sound too vague in saying that but like recognizing that you can you can have power, you can do something significant, but you're not going to achieve absolute world domination. And a narcissistic personality is is kind of in flight from accuracy in a certain way. there's there's a huge amount of deception and concealment that goes into it. So it's it's false a lot of the time in a way that, that ego is not, I think ego also is able to sit in relation to others. So when you have a healthy sense of ego strength, you can also negotiate how you relate to others. It doesn't have to be a kind of one up, one down. When we, when we try to understand ourselves more and we continue to check in with ourselves and be willing to change, 
is that maybe a checks and balance against developing a false self or a narcissistic persona? I mean, I think I try not to talk about narcissistic personalities because it's so overused these days, but I think we all have narcissistic aspects to our character just to put it out there. But having ego strength recognizes that there's something within and something without. There's a kind of differentiation between the self and the world. So it it's less defensive. Like if you if you can be honest with yourself about knowing that you've made a mistake or being disappointed in something that you thought you knew. It, it's tolerable. It doesn't have to be kind of pushed away. You remind us in several places in the book that in life, so much just doesn't go our way. You also talk to us about why we get stuck. And one of the reasons we get stuck is we're afraid of failing. And I know that fear is pretty prevalent in my listening audience. I would say it goes well beyond my audience as well. It's We don't give ourselves enough permission to fail and we're not taught any value of failing. Mm. I think we also are afraid of succeeding. So we, we set really mean traps for ourselves without realizing it. So but you must succeed. You can't possibly succeed. You have to sabotage yourself like we send ourselves messages in a really menacing underground way and I think again like when you can invite in the really mean part of yourself the messages you might be telling yourself or others that is not totally nice you can you can look at the ways that you hold yourself back and kind of become attached to obstacles but I think I think for some, it's it's just so vulnerable to think that you're not going to be able to get anything that you want and better, better to hold on to the dream of it where it's perfect in fantasy than to risk disappointment and risk failure. I think there's also a, a myth that failure is final. Yes, really good point. I I think there's a kind of, there's a myth that most things are final in some way. Like we forget, we forget how much things go different ways in their twists and turns. I think we count on more predictability than, than we should actually. But yes, I think... I think a lot of us feel really haunted by past failures from school as well. I don't know about you, but do you have memories of failing at something? I, I've shared on at least one episode um, that when I was in high school, we were assigned a, um, we had to give a speech in front of the class and we were assigned what it was on. And I was 15, and it was history honors, and I started my speech, and the teacher said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you. I can tell that you're going to waste our time. Oh, my God. I'm so appalled. And he, he told me to sit down, 
And instead, I just sort of walked to my desk and, you know, swept up my stuff and walked right out the door. I didn't take a history class again until college when I found out it was assigned. And then I took it at a school I did not attend, a highly regarded school whose credits would transfer into mine so that I had a safe place to fail where it wouldn't haunt me. Right. Because I was sure that this teacher who had seen me when I was 15 had seen me, truly seen me. And so I took the class um, pass-fail with the goal of, you know, making a C. Right. Because I didn't think it was possible to make an A or B. And the professor took me aside and said, I'd like you to, you know, take this for a grade. And told me I was doing really, really well. And I said, you know, it's early days. Right. I I, I can still fail this thing. And um, I ended up doing quite well. And it was probably a year or so later that I changed my major to history. And now I have a PhD in it. I love it. But it was someone seeing me uh, and encouraging me that helped me let go of a belief I'd held at that point for three years that I had been truly seen as a failure. I love that because if I, if I can dare to say this, I wonder if there was a darker side as well and a kind of revenge, a revenge plan to prove to the part of you that failed that actually wasn't true. I, I, I'm not sort of that person um, in, in some that. ways where people who will say, I hope this person knows where I am now or I, I'm going to go find that high school teacher and tell him. I'm just it was really, <laughs> yeah, this opening of permission mm. to grow and try something else and, you know, declaring a major, you can always change it. So it didn't have to become at the moment when I changed it, this permanent path. I kind of surprised myself, but wait, wait of, a minute. you know. How can you not have any revenge fantasy about this guy? So I feel like that gives him power over who I became, and I'd rather have at least some of that for myself. Understandable, but interesting to think about because I I feel very angry at him and want to say something wherever he is. Well, I hope he's in a place where he lets people speak. I'm sure he probably isn't, but who knows? I mean, I'm I'm curious to understand, not that we can ever necessarily find out, but like, what do you think prompted such a nasty remark? Uh, I think uh, he didn't like his job. Yeah. And he had thought he would land something that to him seemed better or um, more important. And the fact that he was teaching 15 year old history seemed to make him very angry. Yeah. I mean, actually when I was 15, I had a teacher who said to me, you're going to fail and I don't even care. And there was something just devastating about it. But now that I think about it, like the fact that this woman said that to me is is really sad. I feel like in some ways you wrote the book to be everything you never got in all that early therapy. Totally. I I think there's a kind of revenge fantasy there as well, even if I try to be noble. 
but in doing so, it gives to readers things they may not find in therapy or they may never go. Yes. I mean, by revenge fantasy, I mean that living well is the best revenge, that it doesn't have to be a kind of angry fueled plot, but there's something, there's something very disappointing about the idea that therapy will fix or resolve life's tensions. And I think, I think that we can find therapeutic joy and illumination in other ways as well. But I'm almost afraid to say that because I feel like I'm betraying therapists. You invite us to consider that again and again in the book, that it may not be about some outcome. It may be the process. It may be the sitting with the questions and the permission to go forward and sitting in the questions and the contradictions. So they release the idea that therapy is going to fix, solve, or change something. Yes. And they go forward more comfortable with the confusion and life's weirdness. Completely. But again, it's it's the surprise of not what you thought you would discover necessarily or get out of therapy, but something something fresh, something unexpected. But I think sometimes it's a lot harder to be honest in therapy than we realize. And the the negotiations that we have to deal with in getting help for ourselves is much more misattuned than we than we talk about. So there's this kind of, in England anyway, there's a kind of resolved attitude towards therapy where I think it's really difficult to admit to the therapist that you're finding that therapy session really annoying or you feel agitated or you don't agree with something said or you idealize. Like to say what you really think in the here and now and in daring to reveal who you are and kind of say how you feel. It's just so much, it's so much braver than, than it seems. I don't think most of us have practice. No, we're really, we're really socialized to, we're really socialized. We're really used to putting on a show and pretending and we even pretend to sometimes have imposter syndrome. So like pretending not to have ego. And sometimes sometimes the thing we're hiding is that we have glorious images of ourselves and we actually really imagine huge success. Like it's not always it's not always honesty about something flawed. So again, like it's a secret from a lot of us that we think we're really special and talented. One of the questions that comes up in the book is why do we lie to ourselves? We think that we won't be accepted and loved if we show everything. And I think that lying can have different motivations. It can also be a really pleasurable power game and like having having that kind of control over someone else's reality can be very seductive for people but in subtle ways we also lie like we, no one is capable of being honest at every moment so again i think that 
candor can be a mask and like being an honest guy. I'm always honest. Like that's impossible. Is the core of that though, that we're lying to ourselves? We're lying on some level to someone. I mean, lying is a kind of hyperbolic way to put it, but like we're concealing, we're, we're spinning. It's, it's a lot of pretending in order to deal with social expectations. So moments of honesty are actually exhilarating because, because they're rarer than we realize. And I think that one way to catch your own self-deception is when you tell a really open, really frank, really exposing story about yourself, but I definitely have these, by the way, but you've wheeled out that story like 15, 20 times. I don't know. Do you have any of those? The safe Um, disclosures? Well, I think it was probably the mean teacher because I'm so far away and I'm safe now and I don't even... Totally. Know where that person lives. <laughs> I mean, it's not it's not exactly a lie, but it's safe in I'm gonna show you something, but but then there's something else that is harder to reveal and gets buried away and pushed out of sight and and then we just try to kind of discard it. You have a glossary at the back that gives us a lot of interesting terms. One of the ones is the shouldn't shrew. Can you talk to us about the shouldn't shrew? I think that we are constantly pressured by various rules and injunctions about what we're supposed to want, what we're supposed to be. If you if you think about this morning and the choices you made and the way you went about your day, how much of it was fueled by desire and how much of it was, I should do this or I must do this. And shouldn't is always a sign of judgment, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like we need to be reined in and cooperate with society to some degree, of course, and responsibilities. But, but when we only do things because of the fear of judgment or the kind of censorship about what we shouldn't do or shouldn't want. It's very strict and very narrowing. And I think it's worth calling yourself out when you can that like, I shouldn't want that or I shouldn't feel that way. It's when we start trying to censor our inner worlds. We've talked quite a bit about the things that impede us for one reason or another from being who we really are and thinking about what we really want. The title of the book is Tell Me What You Want. What do you believe happens when we start telling ourselves what we want? I think that we discover something, something miraculous. This is going to sound, see, I'm, I'm worried about how it's going to sound even before I've said it. There's something miraculous about the ordinary lived experience that we lose sight of quite easily. And I think that when we can discover our innermost experiences, it's not it's not about finding a solution to life. It's about 
giving yourself permission to be interested in your inner experience and just perceive and be aware. And it's often really ordinary daily life, but there's something about the clarity of expanding the worldview and expanding permission to, to take yourself seriously in a way that enlivens and allows you to, to have something personal, but it's almost like we get plagued by the responsibility we feel for everything except for facing ourselves. There's also a theme in the book about avoiding the presence. It opens very poignantly with a, one of your very first clients who you only have a few sessions with because she's towards the end of her life. And one of the themes that she really wanted to impress on you was her regrets. Oh, and that true. goes through the book about themes of avoiding the present. Not only are people lying to themselves or afraid to show who they are, but they're avoiding the present, which creates this sort of if only and one day mentality. Completely. And actually one way to really both avoid the present and overestimate future self-knowledge is when people say, just plan on not having regrets, like in order to make a choice about your life, how will you feel about that when you're on your deathbed? And I think, I think that regret is something that we have to encounter and it gets denied and it's, it's really space for unfulfilled desires and it's truthful to have regrets. But again, like regret is even more stigmatized than failure. I think, I don't know about you, but like have no regrets as though, as though that's honest and real. You, you can't anticipate every twist and turn and how, how you'll change and how life will change. It does resonate with me. We have these slogans about live like you're dying or have no regrets or don't let a day go by without, you know, doing this or that with your loved one. But having recently experienced hospice with my dad, it creates this very false relationship with the person an almost smothering one. Um, And and so I went against popular advice and just tried to have as much ordinariness and dailiness with him as he had left to just keep the relationship with him and to keep making memories as opposed to keep making experiences. Oh, I love that. That's so beautifully put. And there is a wish to kind of have, have it all figured out and have, have something big happen, some, some huge moment and, and deathbed wisdom and final words and, I think it's brave of you that you that you allowed for the ordinary. Because in in my work with Tessa, the name I give to the woman who was my first client in therapy, who was on her deathbed, I had very big plans for how I could help her, and I wanted things to be extraordinary. Like our our work had to be hugely beneficial to her. When actually, it wasn't possible. It was. It was about just being present. 
and I can't speak for everyone, but I think that's what they want. Well, yeah, and actually, she she was very honest with me because I I remember trying to get this woman to kind of express her desire for closeness to her children who were now grown up, and I I really wanted her big regret was that she hadn't spent more time snuggling her children and there was this disconnect and a lack of affection and closeness. And I really wanted this woman to reconnect with her children. However, however kind of hard things had been and it could all be made okay. And it just doesn't work that way. And I had to tolerate not being able to fix things for her or can fill that space. You tell us in the book that our secret wants aren't nearly as dangerous as our gatekeeping. One of the things that Tessa was trying to convey to you was that she had done this gatekeeping and the family system had gone on with it. Yes. Can you say more about though our secret wants and our gatekeeping I think that we we all have family rules and actually it, it's interesting to write them down to kind of make it explicit like it's the it's the embedded rules of how to be and what matters and it's often it's often insufficiently checked and understood but it's a way of operating and it can really send mixed messages and also also be just limiting. So keeping keeping trauma hidden, I mean, that's obviously a big secret to keep and one that happens all the time in families, but it can be it can be subtle limiting beliefs like you must you must always be doing something useful. You shouldn't be frivolous. You are superior to other people because of your intellect or where you come from. Like it's all of these, all of these musts and personal kind of branding that we don't necessarily realize that they can direct us a lot more than we, than we want as autonomous adults, but kind of going back to those old scripts just allows for an update. Towards the beginning of the book, you say that we pretend to want the appropriate things in the right way. We put our secret wants into a kind of psychological storage facility, our unlived lives. That psychological storage facility, that sat heavy with me. I had to spend some time with that. I, I'm curious to know why. I'm it's it's a wonderful visual way to think about a trap or a behavior that we fall into and to have sort of a constructive way to think about what we might do instead or to catch ourselves. Oh, I'm putting the things in the storage facility again. We're a culture of maybe having too many belongings and for some people, so they actually have a physical storage facility or their office has one because there's too much paperwork. Um and to think of us as having these things that we want that we've put in a psychological storage facility kind of gives us a, an in to start thinking about how we're doing that ourselves. 
Yes. And I think that we often keep our treasures tucked away. So like we save some ideal version of who we could be for, for the one day scenario. And instead of trying, it's why we can be attached to, to limiting ourselves and not pursuing something. So rather than dance badly, hold on to the ideal where you're an amazing dancer and you have this extraordinary life. Like there's often a bit of costume that goes into these ideal, these ideal pictures and we expect them to come true and, and don't really deal with them. And then, and then we don't know how to make use of them. So I don't know what treasures you found or, or what monsters you found in your storage facility. Cause we're also really troubled by like dusty old things that we've been keeping just hidden for no great reason. Thinking about the example of someone's a great dancer because they don't dance. I um, managed to go from college all the way through PhD, never attending a school with a football team. And my dad was a huge football fan. And one day in the school gift shop, I saw this t-shirt that said the name of the school and that said that our football team was undefeated because, you know, it didn't exist. And so I bought him the t-shirt as a present and he just thought it was hilarious, but he also used it as a teaching tool. He he unfortunately shrunk on the first washing or something. And um, he said, don't worry, I have another thought for it. And he used it as a teaching tool because people would at first blush, look at it and say, oh, wow, that football team is undefeated. And that would allow him to go into the idea that it, you know, that <laughs> it actually so doesn't exist. I love that story. Yeah, the things that we that we don't dare pursue, it can remain locked away and untested, unsubstantiated. And and one of the problems with fantasies that we haven't pursued is that of course it's gonna beat reality, which has limitations and setbacks and flaws. Like the fantasy version of yourself that's in storage of how great you'd be at living some other life. It's not like you can ever feel the disappointment of that ideal scenario. The perfect relationship, those go into storage, especially. Or you would have been great at something, so you're not going to try and find out that you wouldn't be great at it. Yeah, and it's really convincing a lot of the time. So I'm still persuaded by my belief that I could have been an amazing jewelry designer. I mean, I've never created any jewelry, but I think I'd be really good at it. We're starting to run out of time. And you tell us towards the end of the book that the best thing you can do in therapy is give encouragement, have deep curiosity about the human experience. So I want to leave with some encouragement and curiosity. So my question is, what do you hope listeners will take away? So I think that it's, I realize I've sounded somewhat perverse saying, I like that anxiety. Like I've named my fondness for for dark things. I think that actually tolerating the darkness and, and being respectful of the darkness within is 
is really consoling. And rather than insist on kind of good vibes only or a positive utopian version of what's possible in life, it's actually a relief to embrace the darkness and and not think you have to solve it or fear it. And if you if you feel some lurking longing to do something bad or to do something good, whatever it is, like accept the range, embrace the range. You don't have to kind of limit yourself to to one type of desire and to have it figured out. And finally, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? That paying attention is utterly worthwhile and it doesn't have to be some extraordinary act that that leads to emotional transformation. I think it can often be just the ordinary daily living and letting something matter, noticing it. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Weber, and sharing your new book, Tell Me What You Want, A Therapist and Her Clients Explore Our 12 Deepest Desires. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you are listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again. Mm-hmm.